live from Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics with moderator Justin Russell. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live from Podcast Village in Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade, worked at last count under four presidents. He is Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. You are like Welcome deep. back. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It beats being in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. I will tell you, you're like deep into your phone today. Everything cool? Oh, everything's fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Just- and joining us from... The Big Apple. She is the former attorney for the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign in the Buckeye State of Ohio. She is the one we know as Sharmila Chari. Hi, Sharmila. Hi, Justin. Great sound quality. It's like Thank you're you. talking to a real mic this time. <laughs> nice. Hey, um, okay, a couple of things. Uh, gotten some tweets, gotten some Whoa. emails. And, oh, I didn't even see you check in, Admiral. You know what? Oh, I got to do this. Rob the Engineer... In the cage, and first of all, Rob's got like 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 a whole party going on back there with all kinds of VIPs. But Rob, you know, at some point, knock and say, "Hey, Admiral Kenner, hold up like an admiral's flag to let me know he's on the air." I was just as surprised as you were when he said, "Hey, hey, yeah, I know." And joining us from the Sunshine State of Florida, he is the retired admiral from your United States Navy. He is what we know as Admiral Ken Caradine. Hey, Admiral. Obviously forgotten, but present. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and and of course we're gonna have to talk to Admiral Ken so he doesn't sound like he's talking to us from Rangoon. Anyway, uh, okay, we've gotten tweets, we've gotten some emails about what happened. Okay, last two weeks, uh, that is squarely on me. First week, I was in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. Can't explain that. Just take it for what it's worth. Last week, family issues, which caused us. So, for the first time in eight years, we have not done two weeks in a row of shows. We're back. We're live. We're going to go back, and you'll have best ofs at the end of the year. So let's get to it. Lots to get to. This has been a bad week or a bad series of events for the White House this week. Uh, Between the Black Friday, the Black Friday EPA report on climate change, uh, you've got also the number, the announcement from GM and Ford about job cuts there and their disappointing numbers. Uh, Trump's approval ratings are in the toilet. This this is really, and you've got the immigration issue, which we're going to talk about to start off with. Uh, Sharmila, this is not what the White House wanted going into the final month of the year, is it? No, but at least we're not talking about Ivanka's emails anymore. Oh, and we got that too. That's right. We forgot about Ivanka. Well, we'll talk about that in the in the Thursday show. But I mean, there's all kinds of going on. Alan Moore, how is the is the is the White House handling this in a way that could be deemed as appropriate, competent? Uh, are they getting in front of it? <laughs> you know, you have to define the it. Um, That's true. It, it, there are a host of things. That are cascading. We 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 are still just today learning sort of the final tally on what turned out to be a bigger disaster in the election and the midterms than the president expected. With now it looks like forty right. seats uh, that, that have turned, which is uh, significantly more than we thought two weeks ago when we were <laughs> when we were, when we were last here three weeks ago. Um, uh, right on the heels of the election, everything just kept rolling slowly, and there were so many close races. It'll create some interesting opportunities in 2020, but for now, um, uh, it, it was uh, it was a it was a worse day 
than than we expected than we thought even three weeks ago the day after the election um and they're still trying to wrestle with that and try to wonder what that all means there's still an open senate seat down in mississippi there is an election today in mississippi um the republican uh notwithstanding a dreadful campaign and some some uh some clear shooting herself in the foot comments still seems likely to prevail but uh it's, it's not a it's not guaranteed and uh and there's an outside chance that if everything aligns perfectly that former congressman former secretary of agriculture mike espy could pull off a, a really remarkable upset. I'm not predicting that. I don't think that will happen. I think that the Republican will win, but because of her self-inflicted wounds, um, it's going to be a shallow. It's going to be well. No, no, it won't be shallow. It'll be plenty deep. Any victories? <laughs> she's got six years if she wins. So it, it it's all in the uh, the 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 win or lose uh, aspect. But boy, what a for somebody who's been a senator now for uh, many months, uh, she really hasn't seemed to have learned that much about how to talk, feeling confident, and so on. Admiral Ken, you're shaking your head. Well, I I, I think it's it's uh, it should not be um, missed that there have been a lot of comparisons drawn between the senatorial race in Alabama and this race in Mississippi. Uh, I think. Uh, while they're both uh, weighty and important, it's 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 an apples and oranges comparison. Uh, the the people of Alabama uh, were not only dealing with the race issue, but more importantly, I think they were dealing with the fact that they were on the verge of electing a, um, for all practical purposes, a, a child molester. Um, allegedly, let's Senate. put that out there. Allegedly, allegedly. To, to allegedly to the U.S. Senate. Um, I think because Mississippi is as um, conservative, and I'm going to use that word politely because I can't think of another one as it is, um, I think that uh, the lack of large metropolitan uh, areas um, is going to have uh, the, uh, the the challenge, going to present them with the challenge of trying to, uh, one, um, be a part of the modern South, um, and at the same time, uh, be held back by a, a lot of just racial divisions that that uh, that permeate that state. It's a tough place to live if you're a person of color, be you black, Indian, or or, or, or whatever. It's tough. Sharmila, I mean, short of there being a slight miracle coming out of Jackson, Mississippi, uh, all indications are that uh, Secretary Aspey pretty much. Although giving it a great run and although a great candidate probably is not going to pull this out, should the Democrats look at the SB campaign as 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 a success in some way, or is success based on win? Well, I think that it will depend on the results of the election and kind of how close the margin is. And I mean, obviously, if SB goes to victory, then yes, they should look at it as a tremendous success. But I think that. I think it was Alan who compared it to Alabama and you know that that's correct in that I think you have a similar model of a incredibly flawed Republican candidate put up against a surprisingly strong Democratic candidate and I think that that's that's not necessarily the model that we've seen in the past couple of cycles so 
again, I think depending on right. how close SP comes, assuming he does not, assuming he does not win. Right. But depending on how close he comes, yes, Democrats should use this as a model and think of it as a victory for success, A, in terms of, you know, how much turnout they can get from communities that typically do not vote or have trouble accessing the ballot, and B, in terms of just seeing a model of what types of candidates they should be recruiting right. in these states. Alan Moore. Yeah, so before we get carried away with what a great candidate SB is, um, let's acknowledge, a, as I did before, as I said before, that, 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 that the sitting senator is a remarkably weak and vulnerable candidate who's prone to say stupid things, which is pretty amazing since she's filling in as the personal pick of the governor when Thad Cochran stepped down um, and she's had all of this time to serve and she still doesn't seem to be very comfortable with issues um, or with public speaking. Espy, on the other hand, what we see in the national press is this constant pounding over this idiotic statement that she made um, uh, that ref- that made a reference to public lynching. It was an offhanded and stupid statement. It was statement. a stupid statement. And, but, but, but Espy, in the meantime, has been hammered in ads down there that we don't see and that the press doesn't talk about except in passing from time to time for the fact that in this decade he took uh, as a lobbyist in Washington, over seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars from a dictator um, with with global human rights violations in in the Ivory Coast, and when he was serving as Secretary of Agriculture, he had to step down with a huge uh, for President Clinton with a huge cloud over his head for accepting on the on, on the order of thirty five thousand dollars worth of gifts and presents and tickets. He was right. prosecuted. He was tried. He was acquitted. Um, but but he took the gifts. The problem at the time was that we didn't have the kind of we tough have the rules that we had that, going that, up till that, now. That we now have that stuff is constantly on the air in Mississippi. So it's not like uh, Mike Espy is this golden person. I, no 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 so, I, I, no 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 he's, no no hold on. He's vulnerable in his own way. Now having said that, he's interesting. He may get close, and maybe he'll be able to join Beto O'Rourke as a presidential candidate in 2020 <laughs> as another uh, another loser who uh, suddenly wow. becomes a front runner. Wow, that was harsh. Wow, Alan, Alan getting venomous here. Uh, Charmel, you want to take that? No, I was just. You know, responding to Alan, I wasn't saying that Mike Espy is a perfect candidate, but I think that compared to the slate of people who... Well, comparing to who he's running over or running to, against, well, rather. To people that have, you know, been Democratic candidates in the past who the party hasn't paid a lot of attention to. You know, he's African-American. He's served in government. He He's a lifelong Mississippian. You know, he he has some strong suits that make him... That give him, I think, more appeal than a traditional Democrat would in the state. And again, like I said, right. he is, you know, his opponent, Cindy Hyde Smith, is more of a flawed candidate than I think, you know, would normally right. be in an election. Admiral Ken. Election. Admiral Ken. Admiral Ken? No, oh, it looked like you had something. No, no, I was trying to, I was having a difficult time getting the mute turned off. Um, so one of the things I think that came out in um, in the president's uh, stump speech for um, uh, for Hyde Smith last night was he he asked the question so who is this Mike Espy guy Well I mean not only is Mike Espy you know the the only 
person from Mississippi, only person from Mississippi to serve in a cabinet post in recent history. Um, you know, his family's got quite the track record in the state. Uh, I agree with Alan that um, a lot of um, the bad press around him dealt with uh, things that, you know, today, you know, might be difficult to, to get past the sniff test. But then again, you know, we've seen a lot of the same kind of behavior from a, from several member of, members of Trump's, Trump's current cabinet. So uh, I think at the end of the day, I have to agree with Alan that my money is, it would not be on, on SB to win tonight. Uh, if he pulls it off, you know, great, be awesome uh, for a number of reasons. Um, you know, most of all, I, I think this lady is just too dumb to be, to be believed. Wow. And, uh, I, I, I have a, well, no, I'm sorry. I, I think, you know what, either either she, either she – So much for she, civility, Admiral Ken. Uh, you know, civility went out the window uh, last uh, last inauguration day. Uh, and it's time we start calling, calling you know, a uh, pig a pig when we see it. Um, so – you know, Whoa. either, either yeah, yeah, so, either she, so much for a mantra of civility, green civility either back. She, either she is politically, either she is, either she is politically um, incompetent, or she's dumb, and there, there's no in between there. All right, well, there's that. Hey, uh, I, I do want to move on real quick because I, I want to get in this segment. I want to talk about this problem at the border, which will probably sc- kind of scoop over to the next segment. But uh, the caravan. That was such a big talking point for Republicans during the midterms this past month. Well, they're finally at the border. And just when you thought, okay, it couldn't get any worse, well, it did. What it looks like is that at the border crossing at San Ysidro between Tijuana and San Ysidro, California, over the weekend, uh, it was... um, how do you put, what would be a good way of putting that, Alan? What, what would you say it was? There were attempts to cross illegally. They did they in fact storm the border? A few, apparently, a few hundred did. It was somewhat chaotic. It was frightening. It 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 frightened the, some of the Mexican border guards, and it and it frightened some of our border guards enough that they used they used, some, they used some tear gas. Tear gas. Well, um, I mean, tear gas. Which is, let, 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 and, and that and that is something I do want to say is I, I, I've worked with Border Patrol. I've worked in migrant operations. It, when we say tear gas, that's just a generic term. It's a pepper gas, is what it is. It's it's a CN cayenne pepper gas. Uh, Is it pleasant? No, but uh, I don't want everybody thinking that we're using chemical warfare on our border, which is not only illegal, but but at the same time, no. Let let's let's be clear. Having been through the the tear gas chamber training as a young officer candidate uh, many years ago, that stuff hurts. Oh yeah, it, it still hurts. hurts. Bad. It still it hurts. It hurts bad. Yeah. And, and and the fact that little kids had to, had to learn that out, learn that at, at this point is even worse. Let, well, let, let's get back to let's go back to the border topic here. Is Alan did did has the president overplayed his cards on the border situation, particularly with what happened over this weekend, or is what he did justifying the rhetoric before? Okay, so let's remember the president didn't throw any gas canisters. Um, those decisions are made locally. No, no, in the and, moment. and we're not, and we're not, we're not. I'm not suggesting. What I'm saying is, is his border reaction, which because again over the weekend he also said that I will close this border. 
Uh, they are going to invade the border. A bunch of rhetorical statements coming out of the White House and the president. So, you but know, I'm not. I'm not accusing him of throwing tear gas. Fair, fair enough. Um, I mean, you see headlines that talk about Trump's tear gas. So, so um, here's the here's the issue as I see it. The the, the president really acted in a disgusting way in the course of the campaign in the way he demonized and tried to uh, to build fear around um, these thousands of people who were coming up by constant exaggerations of their numbers and who was in their midst. Um, interestingly, interestingly, I saw very few Democrats engaging on that issue on the other side during the campaign they stayed very disciplined and very focused on issues of health care and jobs and and a president who is not truthful um, and who embarrasses America by and large in my uh, view of it they most of them stayed away from uh, the immigration issue and from the demonizing of the people in the caravan because those images worked uh, in in my mind in their in, favor. In, in, in the no no in the favor of the president, you saw huge crowds of people, and it was like they're all coming north. We can't take everybody. There is a responsible way to talk about this. Two former presidents, Obama and Bush, talked responsibly about it, even as they closed the door and sent people home. President Obama deported about three million people right. dur during his presidency right. on occasion his border people used tear gas um it's just that it's the kind of thing idea of last resort you do it when everything else fails and you try to talk about it in a reasonable way and you try to talk about the need to come together and figure out what our policy is so that w the world doesn't think particularly from central uh, mexico and, and, and central america come on up Find a way in. You'll be able to get in. You'll be able to stay. Um, nobody thinks that's a good idea. Well, let, let me go to Sharmila. I want to go back to the statement, to the statement that Alan made, Sharmila, that the Democrats pretty much stayed arm's length away from this topic. Was that a smart play, or could they have really put the pressure on the president to say, let's look at this logically? Yes, I I do agree with Alan, um, and I do think it was a smart move on the Democrats. Alan is right that Democrats I hate it when that you know, happens. particularly in districts they were looking to swing really stuck to local issues. So, what did you say, Justin? I, said I hate it when that happens. When Alan's right like that, it sucks. <laughs> uh, but Democrats, you know, especially in in swing districts where they were trying to flip the seat, stuck to local issues such as you know, local economics, the local economy, healthcare, um, you know, creating a stronger and more unified community in their own backyards rather than take the fight to the president over immigration. Um, I, and I, I agree with Alan as well that I think the optics of the caravan uh, were in the president's favor, right? Like they showed that, you know, the, the caravan that he'd been warning about and he'd been crying foul about for the last two months was actually a real thing. There were thousands of people coming to the border, all trying to get in at one time. And that is a, you know, even for people who are not as hardline for the president on immigration, I think of people like my own parents who are immigrants to this country, it was a jarring image for them. And even they were saying, well, you know, like, we think Trump's a jerk, but he's not wrong. We can't let all of these, you know, 
you know, even though I'm sure they're all deserving and they all are escaping a bad situation, we can't let everyone in in this way. Right. And I think also I think what helped the president a little bit was the fact that, you know, he he uh, issued that order that asylum applicants could not cross the border until their applications were processed and that, you know, he has reached this temporary agreement with Mexico, although now I think it's in flux with the new government coming in, that the immig- the, the migrants would be housed in Mexico pending the um, processing of their asylum applications. So I think those were all political victories for the president. And I think that the Democrats learned their lesson of the first few months of the Trump administration where they kind of knee-jerk reacted to the Muslim ban and the repeal of DACA and all these sort of hot and you know, these self-created controversies that the president manufactured. And they learned that the best way to appeal to moderate voters was to stick to issues that really much more directly affect Americans. Admiral Ken, you look at the numbers, the Department of Homeland Security now has 600 additional Customs and Border Protection officers on the border at the ports of entry to support this to support this effort dealing with the caravan. They've got an additional 250 Border Patrol agents in the area. They've got uh, uh, basically tactical teams from ICE, HSI that are down there. But the, the big sticking point on this has always been that within the past uh, two weeks, the president has deployed not National Guard troops, but active duty DOD military troops to the border to work in the United States side of the border. Are we dancing a slippery uh, dance here on that issue? Yeah, yeah, I, I think we are. One, I, I think it's, a, and I'm not the only you know former senior military leader to say this, uh, and I'm unfortunately gonna gonna have to join 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 a chorus of people, you know, again speaking out against the president. This is a BS mission. It was a BS mission from the very beginning. He did it to garner some points during the midterms. Um, you know, and, and you know, he he made the comment that uh, he is given um, permission for these the, these young men and women to uh, to use lethal force if necessary. Mm-hmm. I sure hope that whoever the the tactical commander on the ground understands um, yeah, exactly you know the, the rules of engagement and how they bump up against US code because you know if, if someone does something they could very 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 easily find themselves in a court of law at, or if not jail and um, it's it's not what the US military is designed to do Admiral Ken, are you, Admiral Ken, are you shocked are you shocked that general Mattis didn't push back harder or do we know for a fact? I mean, we don't know for a fact he did or did not. But are you surprised that he wasn't more vocal about this? No, I'm really not. Uh, you know, I, I think that um, um, you know, I think that the military, um, especially senior leaders, have a way of um, trying to tamp down, uh, tamp down, and and slow roll things as as best as they can without openly coming out against the boss. I think. Quite frankly, the only thing that he, the only way he would do that is the president ordered him to do something that was patently uh, illegal and uh, anti-constitutional. But yeah, I'm not surprised at at uh, at, at, at uh, Mattis's reaction. Alan Moore. Yeah, I, to build to build on what what uh, what what the admiral is saying here, um, military men respect the chain of command. 
presumably, presumably Mattis had numerous opportunities to convey his views to the president. We don't know exactly what they were, and we don't necessarily have the right to know what they were. And then the order is given, and Mattis has a choice. Carry out the order or resign. You don't go public. You don't say. They're, they're, and he's not the game player who who puts out the secret word, well, Mattis fought like hell to make this, uh, to, to stop this, and so on. Let us also say, I, I think the the numbers were, at the end, we sent something over 5,000 people down there, 5,500, 5,600, but about 3,000 or more came home um, prior to Thanksgiving. So right. they went down, they put up the concertina wire, they helped set stuff up, and then a lot of them returned. But they're still active duty. There are DOD. still there, but but I'm just saying, you you, you were at 5,600, and then you were down to about 1,800. If right. I if I read it right, that's that's so, close. So I'm just trying to keep the facts. No, 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 no. And clear. I understand, but but, but the fact I, I think it was also stupid. Fact. I think it was a bad use of the military. I think it was political. But I'm just trying to keep the 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 facts in front of us as well. But I mean, if we had a functioning Department of Justice, if we had a functional uh, national security staff that would look at this and go, we are really hitting the wall on Posse Comitatus and Stafford Act here. Uh, this is a bad optic. Nobody wants to see active duty DOD troops in the field on American soil operating. That is a bad, bad optic that we're playing with here, and it sets a bad precedent. Where does it end? Where does it stop? So I think you're over. I think you're overreacting. To, I, I, I'm to, not overreacting to, 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 to the bad to optic. The, I don't think most people worry that much about it. We have one minute left, real quick. Go to Sharmla. Sharmla, last word. Well, I wanted to circle back to something Ken said, which was, you know, at the beginning that this was a BS move by the president to move troops to the border in the first place. And I wonder if even though he's won the short term optics battle here, if the optics of the caravan is going to ultimately backfire on him before 2020. The fact that the president has been railing against migrants since at least mid 2015, this is not a new stance he's taking, but then you're going to see even and there's word that, you know, another migrant caravan is forming in the Northern Triangle and coming, you know, planning to come up Mexico. The fact that you're going to see increasing crowds of migrants looking to come into the United States, you know, will really fundamentally backfire against the president's, re- you know, rhetoric being a deterrent for migration. Yeah. And the fact that he has not made any meaningful policy strides right. to keeping them out, I think, could potentially backfire on okay. We're, we're, around, uh, all right. Know, well, we're going to keep an eye on this. Time. We're going to we're going to keep an eye on this. When we come back, we're going to talk about the other bad topics that are hitting the White House this week. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live from Podcast Village. I'm George in Washington D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. That's the way I feel today. My heart is aching because he's making a plaything of my devotion. That's the way I feel today. That man turned his keys in, he packed and went away. What good is living? I'll soon be giving my body up to the ocean. That's the way I feel today.
live from Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics with moderator Justin Russell. And we're back here in Podcast Village here in Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. For the second half of our Tuesday show, joining me as they do every Tuesday, Alan Moore in New York City, Sharmacharian in the Sunshine State of Florida, Admiral Ken Carradine. Uh, joining us in the cage as always, Rob the Engineer, Manny here taking photos and doing her last day as our intern, by the way, which we're sad to see her go. And then uh, and then Robin's in the cage with, Ro- with Rob, which is kind of cool. He's got company in there that isn't one of our horde giving him a hard time. Anyway, let let's let's talk about the 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 big economic. Was that a was that a car horn? Something just happened outside the studio here. <laughs> we'll have to send Robin out to investigate. Oh, okay, yeah. Wow. Okay, that was interesting. Uh let's talk about the numbers coming out of GM. Uh there's a problem. So in case you haven't heard, General Motors announced this week that they are going to be closing down Plants in Ohio, Maryland. Uh, where else did they say? Um, there were four of them, I think. Alan Ward, Ohio, Maryland, I think Detroit, one's in Michigan, one in Michigan, yeah. and what was the fourth one? I forget. The, uh, those were and those were car plants. And then I think there was a parts or transmission uh, plant or something like that. Um, anyway, regardless, uh, fifteen, roughly fifteen thousand, both blue collar and white collar jobs being shut out of GM. That's on top of the fact. That Ford announced a four percent reduction in total workforce in their organization after dismal numbers being reported for the quarter, and yet the president comes back and says, "Hey, uh, General Motors, you better do something about fixing that Ohio issue, because if not, I'm going to be really, really angry." And GM just kind of went, "Yeah, whatever." Um, Alan Moore, from an econo- from an economics point, we've heard the president take all the credit in the world for this. GM and Ford are giving not total blame, but they are putting some of the blame on the tariffs being put out by the president in the White House. Is is there some bl- is there some blame to go around through the White House and as well as GM? Well. It, this is one of those cases where everybody wants. It, it, we've we've got false expectations. The president did a great job of elevating expectations, telling people in Ohio, for example, "Don't move, don't sell your house. The jobs are coming back," um, which is a, just an absurd thing to imply as possible um, by presidential action. Um, we've had a very strong economy. Some jobs have come back. Um, but it's been in response to the to the strong economy, not particular actions the president has taken. The two things that the that, that the president has done, which clearly have done some harm, are putting a tariff on on specialty steel and a tariff on uh, aluminum, both of which are used to some extent in U.S. cars. So. I think both Ford and GM have said that the tariffs, this wasn't just about the tariffs, although the tariffs have caused them both hits um, of in the neighborhood of a billion dollars, which is not nothing. Um, however, we're talking about trying to save billions. Here's the nut of the problem for both GM and Ford. 
years ago in the for, in the auto industry, you have to make decisions years ahead of what you're going to build and how many you're going to build, and you're trying to read the market. They made an expectation that gas prices were going to continue to steadily rise, and American consumer was going to want right. smaller, more fuel-efficient cars. Americans don't want smaller, more fuel-efficient cars. They and, want SUVs. And because because of fracking and increased um, supply of oil domestically, making the U.S. now the number one oil right. producer in the world, um, and stable and then more recently declining oil prices in a strengthening economy, people say, I don't want those little cars. I want the big cars. And if I want a little car... I'm going to buy Japanese. So there are still sedans that are that are made in America, sold in America, and they're and they're made by Toyota and Honda and and, and to a lesser degree Nissan and Mazda. Not to, wait a minute. Not to but, mention Mercedes and BMW are still building sedans here. Well, I'm talking about the smaller fuel efficient sedans, not the big ones. I mean Cadillac and and Buick, um, uh, Lincoln. They're 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 still uh, doing doing fine building biggish cars. It's the small American cars, including the the Chev, the Chevy Hybrid Volt. It will be no more after next year. They won't exist now. GM hates to have to close right. uh, factories. They hate to have to admit that they guessed wrong right. about what to do. It's embarrassing and expensive to shut factories down, and, but it's the market that's causing this, not the president. Right. And and by the way, uh, thanks to the great research done by uh, Audrey Howerton, our crack, not crack, but our expert producer up at the spa in Saratoga Springs, the GM plants being shut down, Detroit- Warren, Ohio, White Marsh, Maryland, and Warren, Michigan. Uh, these are the plants that make the Chevy Volt, the Impala, the Cruze, the Buick LaCrosse, and the Cadillac CTS, XTS. They are going away. Uh, Sharma, you know, for a president that has been touting his finger on the pulse of the economy and his ability to really drive the market, uh, he he didn't drive this if he did, he drove it into a wall. I mean, is are we starting to see some of the breaks in the armor in the financial expertise of the Trump administration? Yes, I mean, short answer, yes. I hate to keep agreeing with Alan, but or keep you know channeling Alan in my Stop responses. It. Stop it! <laughs> right, you can't blame the president solely for GM's decision. There was an incredible amount of factors that go into something like this, including, as Alan pointed out, consumer demands and, and trends and kind of, but, you know, larger macroeconomic circumstances obviously playing a part. I think that, but I think you are right. You but, know, but, so but Sharma, many, just so that many, point, so though. So people who, who believed in Barack Obama and voted for him twice and then potentially voted for Bernie Sanders turned around and voted for Trump because in part because they thought he was more competent to handle the economy. They thought that he was a successful businessman who would be able to bring that same prosperity back into a lot of these rural patches that were suffering from <coughs> plant closings or, or lo reduced production that had been going on over the last decade or so. And, so, and you're right. I think that facade has been cracked. I think it's been obvious in a lot of the economic moves that the president has made, including, <coughs> excuse me, including these, you know, tariff deals that 
that you see that, you know, right. soybean farmers and dairy farmers have been railing against that the president does not actually know what he's doing when it comes to the economy. And I think that these plant closures only add fuel to that fire, whether or not they will be enough to sway back these kind of those Obama Trump voters in the 2020 election back to the path of Democrats, or perhaps it will keep them from voting at all because they think both parties don't care about their welfare is yet to be seen. But I do think it contributes to the cracking of the facade. Admiral Ken, I mean, GM did not make this, as Alan pointed out, did not make this decision in the vacuum. Uh, According to some people uh, in the automotive industry, this decision was probably made years before or a year before the election and maybe a year even before that. Uh, But yet, again, instead of working with and having direct contact with and having dialogue with the industry, we just hear a administration that goes in saying, look, the economy's fantastic and everybody's working and the tariffs are working. Look, we're smart and... Now we're starting to see this. Uh, is this a wake-up call for those blue-collar voters that put Trump into the White House? Are they starting to second-guess their decision? I, I don't. I don't know, honestly. Um, as late as this afternoon, um, one of the network news outlets did a um, a live interview with a gentleman that lives in Nord- in, in Lordstown. And it was quite evident that he, one, uh, was a Trump supporter, still believed in the president's ability to bring all those jobs that went away um, prior to him being elected president, uh, being able to bring all those back. This guy still still was believing it. And this is a blue collared uh, guy. He, you know, he's, he, he, he called himself that. I, I, I'm not labeling them that. And. Um, nope. Uh, keep going. I think Dan Lipner just joined, but keep going. Dan, mute yourself, please. Thank you. Um, I, you know, I don't believe that there's enough that that, that I think the, that 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 core um, that core group of people that that believe in the president that 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 I, I think is probably down to maybe twenty five, twenty six percent of of that core group that still believe in him, no matter what he does. They're still there. They're still going to believe in him. And, and, uh, and I don't think it, it will matter one whit what the economy does. Right. I don't think it'll matter one whit what uh, Robert Mueller uh, uh, shows in, in his final report. They will be with him until the bitter end. Well, uh, through the static of Dan Lipner's cell phone, Dan Lipner, welcome. Thank you. I, I, I'm just so happy that the dear leader is going to have his own news agency to broadcast that his flatulence does indeed smell like roses. I haven't had enough. Hey, Dan, mute, your, mute yeah, yourself. Yeah, you, mute yourself. You know, go back to mute. We liked it better when you were on mute, Dan. Uh, let me go to Dan Lipner. Dan Lipner, I can't believe I'm doing this after that last statement. Dan Lipner, when it, it appears that the, the economy is not boding well for, as I pointed out with Admiral Ken before, not just the blue collar voters, but it's now starting to affect some of the upper middle class voters from these uh, mid American industrial cities that put Trump into office. Is is this a case that Donald Trump 
may win the battle but lose the war in the end as far as looking forward to 2020? It's not clear. Donald Trump has run an awfully lucky streak that got him to the presidency. It's not clear that he's going to. Yeah, we lost Dan. Oh, All right. oh darn. Oh darn. Yeah, we, I see the disappointment on your face. Uh, Rob, let's go ahead and lose Dan and have him call back in on a better connection. Hey, uh, Alan Moore, the the reality is that we're starting to see a, how do I put this, uh, a reverberation of some of the economic decisions made by the president. I mean, the president even said that he may, because of remarks made by uh, um, Stephen Cook, the chairman of Apple, he might even put Tim a ter- or, uh, Tim Cook rather, the CEO of Apple, he might actually put a tariff on iPhones. Is is this somebody who just doesn't understand global economics the way we'd expect the president to, or is he getting this information from his economic staff that we're supposed to trust? Well, so it, it, we learned during the campaign and ever since that this guy talks a better game than he really plays or understands when it comes to global economics, global trade, uh, uh, trade deficits with individual countries, uh, the Federal Reserve, the federal budget, budget deficits, the debt. He, he's constantly mixing stuff up asserting things and his view is if I have the if, if I've got the biggest microphone and I talk the loudest then I will win the argument um, but but it, it's clear that he doesn't have the knowledge he doesn't he doesn't have the understanding having said that um, the, this is a big powerful strong economy that we've got and it's continued to become stronger um, notwithstanding um, some major interesting developments just in the last month or so. Um, but but um, he cannot control all of these things. He wants credit when something goes well, and then he's going to lay blame when, when things go south. And things go south in economies um one of the one of the the things he said recently talking about his misunderstanding was when he started reading and hearing about concerns over the national debt now over 21 trillion dollars and annual deficits that are over a trillion when obama's deficit in his last year was just under 600 billion right for a, for a whole host of reasons that didn't have a lot to do with the president obama or now president trump he suddenly realizes oh my god the deficit that's what's causing the fed increased interest rates we're going to have to be spending more and more on interest hey we need to cut the deficit and in a cabinet meeting he reportedly asked cabinet members to come up with plans to cut spending by by about 5 per, 5% <laughs> right uh, except for defense for, at 2% um, which, by the way, wouldn't solve everything, and there was no talk about revenue, and people were shaking their heads, and and then they walked away and thought, this man does not understand how this stuff works, the interaction between revenues, spending, entitlement spending, Social Security, right. Medicare, which he's taken off right. the table. Um, 
he doesn't understand. Now, having said that, that that doesn't it means he's not going to come up with the solution by himself. The question is whether he's got the leadership, the sufficient understanding and leadership ability to say, hey, Congress, let's sit down and start addressing some of this stuff together. We're going to have a Democratic House. There's a potential for some bipartisan conversation. Right. I'm not saying it's a likelihood, but it's a different kind of potential than we've had before. Charlie, I mean, we've seen some pretty disturbing, not disturbing, let me rephrase that. We, we've seen some discouraging economic numbers coming out of both Wall Street and here in D.C. Uh, we've had a couple of weeks of stock values just completely tanking any gains we made during the year. We've... Um, we we haven't seen the president really take any responsibility for or any sort of uh, comments, if you will, about the fact that you know when when it's high, it's high. Look at me, um, Trump. It's Trump economics, Trump bump. And now that we've lost all those gains, we hear nothing. Uh, is 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 the American electorate going to start seeing through this, or do they just not care? Well, I think that is yet to be seen. Personally, I know that for me, it's exhausting to hear this cycle of, oh, when things are good, give me all the credit. When things are bad, it's everyone else's fault but my own. And we'll just blame Obama. <clears throat> and Or anyone else, right? I think even the president, even even Donald Trump, you know, lacks, I think, the imagination and the rhetorical capacity to somehow blame today's GM news on Barack Obama. <laughs> Although, if he does, sure it would surprise me. Yeah, they tried. Um, But I think that, yeah, I mean, I know for me, it's certainly exhausting. Obviously, I was never a Trump voter and cannot speak for them. But I do think that if this was someone in your regular life that acted this way, that, you know, was constantly acting a fool and talking about things they knew nothing about, you would get tired of them. Whether or not that is going to extend to the president, we'll have to see in, I think, early 2019, mid 2019, when we start looking at his favorability ratings then. Also remember that the American public has gotten so numb to the president's almost daily outbursts and, you know, norm breaking that I feel that, you know, his approval polls are so malleable because of that, right? In any given week, based on that week's news, he could be up five points or down 10 points. It's, and I think, and I realize that that's true of any president, but I feel like with, with the Trump presidency, we've, we've gone in extremists. So I think that, if he continues this pattern of behavior, I, of course, see people getting sick of it, but it's really going to depend on any intervening circumstances that happen between now and mid-2019. Dan Littner, same question to you. Is is, is the American people, are the, is the American electorate going to see their way through what they're hearing come out of the White House versus what they're seeing in their 401ks? I mean, most of the Trump voters aren't necessarily people with a whole lot invested in their 401ks. They're the folks that were living paycheck to paycheck that saw the left-wing liberal elite as folks that weren't speaking for them, nor their issues, nor seeing their suffering. That said, Trump has promised a voice in Washington that would also alleviate their suffering. And those downstream effects of a stock market shifting, General Motors jobs leaving, Harley-Davidson jobs leaving, all of which flies in the face 
of Donald Trump's rhetoric that those were the jobs he said explicitly he would keep. So at a certain point, while he could lay, while he laid claim to things that he had nothing to do with, my personal favorite is still the uh, he was really tough on the FAA. That's why there were no accidents his first year of his presidency or no fatalities, I should say. Um, this is a certain point when people can no longer put food on their family to uh, quote George W. Bush. It's going to be a problem. So the question is where that floor is going to be when you can no longer escape literally everyone else for your problems. Alan Moore, you are the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. Are is this a calm before the storm, or are we already in the storm? You know, this is a very strong economy. It was. It was. It had come a long way back uh, from from the, the the Great Recession of two thousand seven and eight. Over the course of the Obama administration, one can argue how what was done, how quickly it was done, but but the improvement was steady. It got it. It it got a boost with uh, President Trump um, uh, for reasons that are a little bit mysterious. It wasn't because his policy was so great or all of Wall Street loved it. The tax bill clearly um, uh, w- was was a, a boost, um, but. It was a temporary boost, and the economy moves and sways in 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 response to world events, to domestic events, less so to political events. Although, when the president decides to impose tariffs, that becomes a problem over time. This president thought he would be able to impose some tariffs, and the other side would immediately collapse and accept, and they don't. They don't. It doesn't work like that. They didn't do that. Let me just jump in real quick, Alan, because when you bring up the issue of tariffs, you know, like you said, they thought China would collapse. They thought that uh, South Korea would fold. The EU would fold. And it, if they're playing the waiting game as much, and, and the ones that are getting hurt are the farmers, are the car manufacturers, are the steel workers. These are the people that are actually taking it in the rear end or the rash actions of the White House. Well, there's there's winners and losers in all of these. My complaint, as I said numerous times on this show, was not that China was not a bad actor. For me, China was ample target for this administration in a slow steady, increasingly tough uh, uh, manner uh, to take on. Leave Europe alone. Leave Mexico alone. Leave Canada alone. This president took on everyone. He drove off the allies that would have been ours, not to mention the the Asian countries, uh, Japan, uh, uh, Vietnam, uh, and others, um, with, uh, with, with Ch- in, in Korea, uh, right. with China. So he tried to take on everyone. He thought he could win um, using the same little tactic. He did not. He's still trying to clean up some of that mess. Um, China is still the big, uh, the the elephant in the room and the main target. Should we, Dan Lipner, I'm going to ask you this question. Should we be worried that the president is going to the G20? Dan Lipner? I mean, personally, I'm worried anytime this president represents the United States on everything. So the G20 is no different. 
Dan has a point. Dan does have a point. Sharmila, you agree with Dan? <laughs> I mean, should we be should we be worried that we've got an already kind of spun up president with bad economic news going to the G20 summit and he's already got every he's got about 18 of the G20 members already ticked at us and he's having a private meeting with Putin. Should we be concerned? Yes, but I think, no, to Dan's point, no more concerned than we normally are when he engages with international leaders. I think it's just going to be a further opportunity for him to discredit himself in the eyes of world leaders and kind of make the U.S. look foolish on the world stage. So basically what you're do saying is... he can do any major damage? Yeah. So in other words, what you're saying is we basically are going to call this Tuesday. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, Admiral Ken, uh, the, 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 we're going to talk about it uh, in a future show, but... Uh, in the last two minutes we've got here, the uh, the Russian-Ukrainian issue is starting to blow up. We saw video come out over the weekend uh, with a Russian naval patrol boat smashing into a Ukrainian naval vessel. Is this a fuse that we need to be keeping an eye on, and should we be worried? So Vladimir Putin um, has shown a propensity for pushing the envelope. Um, for those of you who've not seen the movie Top Gun, uh, what that means is that he's shown the, a, a propensity for seeing how far he can go uh, without getting any any real pushback. Now, there's probably maybe two countries in the world that can give the kind of pushback um, that he needs to, to, to have in order for him to understand you're playing with fire. That would be Great Britain and us, the United States. Uh, so far, we have shown no real uh, desire on the part of our, the, the National Command Authority and the president to, to do that. So um, is this something that we need to take a look at and watch very carefully? Yeah. And when you think about this in concert with the number of intercepts that U.S. fighters have gotten over the skies of, of Syria in the Middle East in the last few months or so that seemed to have gone on the back burner because we're having more fun watching Jim Acosta get screamed at by the president. Um, yeah, this is something we can take a look at. All right. Uh, with that, we're going to let that be the last word. On behalf of Admiral Ken, Sharmila Chari, Dan Lipner, Alan Moore, uh, our studious Executive producer Audrey Howerton, who looks like she literally just got out of a spa in Saratoga Springs. And Manny, we got to say goodbye to you. Manny, thanks for joining us as always. Rob, the engineer, thank you. Always great job. I'm your host, moderator Justin Russell. Uh, tune in for our show, our Thursday show, live on Spreaker. We'll be broadcasting that uh, live here on Twitter right now. We can pick it up as a podcast on t- Spreaker on Thursday. Uh, have a great week, America. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. Papa, sugar, papa, how come you do?